0: things work. Oh, he's just twisting it. Do this. And this. I want to take this off. So you have a head stand up I appreciate that. <laughs> wow. So 100 years ago, we would not have been allowed to share that dance in public for fear of being arrested and put in jail 100 years ago. You know, it wasn't until the late 1920s, I think 1924 actually, we were given the right to vote. We were recognized as American citizens. But it wasn't until the late 1940s that many of uh, that, that some of the states began to allow some of our tribal people to vote and so so we're here now we're voting we're uh we're honored to be here i'm honored to be here with my church family with Pastor Chris and Miss Dorina and, and all of these family and friends we see here. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of this day with us. Thank you for sharing in this dancing. And I say sharing in the dancing because as we dance, as your, your presence here and your involvement is participation for us. Now, many of you guys and, and many people have asked me through the years as they see me, they say, Charles, you, you don't really look Indian, Right? That's always a funny question because I, instinctively, I want to say, "You mean I don't look like your Hollywood preconceived idea of what an Indian's supposed to look like?" <laughs> or I could say, "Well, that's because I've never even been to India. I don't even know what Indians." <laughs> I'm much taller than most that I have met, but I get what they're saying. See, because I'm I'm half white. My mom's white, and my dad's Choctaw. Which was great growing up because I could play Cowboys and Indians all by myself. (laughs) And almost always I win. Almost always. (laughs) And my wife, my beautiful wife Susan here is dancing and and she was back here getting all nine kids ready. Is that how many we have now? Nine? (laughs) She was back there getting them all ready to dance, braiding hair and doing all of that. And... uh, And so it's special to have her here. Now, now I mentioned we have nine children, and we have five different last names within those nine children. You see, because it's amazing how God works, he's given us five children by the miracle of birth, biological birth, and he's given us four children through the miracle of adoption. But just like God does not distinguish between which of us were born of Mary and which of us were he adopted, nor do we. Now, it is a little interesting in that some of our last names, when we try and cross borders going up into Canada, and they look at all these last names, and they're trying to put the pieces together. You see, because our oldest daughter, Lakota, her last name is Dodging Horse. And when we first got married, we brought another girl in to live with us who needed a place to stay for a period of time, and her last name was Black Spotted Horse. And so I know that God has a sense of humor because my wife's original maiden name was Owns Different Horses. And so we, (laughs) you can't make this stuff up because, see, in native communities, in native communities, we had these really cool last names. Some of them are really cool. You know, some of them like Eagle Speaker. That's kind of a cool last name. We know people whose last name is Shot on Both Sides. (laughs) We know a guy who's shot with two arrows, right? But then there's also the lame um, screams in the bushes Now that's not a name I would actually choose for myself If I had a <laughs> We also know a yellow old woman That's a last name, yellow old woman So you got all these really cool names within native communities And then you've got the Robinson in me, right? But, but a lot of people ask me How many languages do you speak? Do you speak Choctaw? Do you speak I said I speak a little bit of Choctaw A little bit of Blackfoot A little bit of Lakota I said, but I grew up in Texas, so I, I, it's hard for me to just speak English, right? <laughs> and so, so as we try and speak all these different languages, because in the United States today, there are about 567 different federally recognized tribes, about 300 languages still spoken. So I speak a little bit of a few different languages. But you know what? It really doesn't matter which language we speak. Because if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. does not envy, does not boast, Is not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be made still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes the imperfect just disappears. You see, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, just as we are fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Why is that? You see, because in heaven, there's no more need for faith, is there, Pastor? Because see, faith is the, is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So when we get to heaven, there's no need to have faith because it's all there. When we get to heaven, there's no need for hope because everything we could hope for is present. But love, love continues on. Love continues on. And so today, though, today what I want to do is I want to encourage you guys to be strong and have hope. To be strong in hope. Of those three beautiful faith, hope, and love, I'm going to, I want to encourage you guys today to have hope. But see, now there's a lot of things we can have hope in. A lot of different things we can have hope in. We can have hope in that, that we would attain great riches like so many of you, a couple of weeks ago, I paid $2 for a lottery ticket in hopes of winning that $340 million. Yesterday I was hoping that my Oklahoma Sooners would beat the Texas Longhorns. And even today, I'm hoping the Titans will win a game. Sadly, I'm afraid we may be over three on my hopes. So in spite of what you've gone through, in spite of the junk and the crud that we've all experienced in life, and and I I know so many of you in here, and I know so many of your stories, and I know there's a lot of junk back there that you've had to deal with in life. But I want to encourage you to have hope. I want to encourage you to find a way, dig down deep, figure out a way to have hope. You see... as native people of this land. We've had a bunch of junk done to us as well. We don't have the market cornered on, on bad history or historical experiences and, and cultural experiences. We've all had that in our, in our lineage somewhere along the line. But just as I have hope in the shed blood of Jesus, I also have hope in the saving grace of Jesus. And that somehow those crimson drops that Jesus shed would somehow not only cleanse my ancestors of long ago, as they have done me, but in ways that I can't even quite understand that God would see fit to bring those folks into heaven as well. Now, one of the things I, I hope to do is, as is, is I share some stuff today is to kind of stretch your theology just a little bit. And I may, I may hope I don't make too big a mess that pastor has to clean up after me. But one of the things is always, it's a big question I had, and I don't have an answer for what I'm about to throw out there. So, but I do want you just to kind of think on this. We know that when the Europeans first began to come across this country. As bad as the, the smallpox, smallpox infested blankets that they, that they gave our native people was, as bad as some of the intentional genocide and the killings and stuff, as, as bad as that was on our people, the greatest killer of our people were the diseases that spread through the animals that were brought over, the swine and some of the others. And we know that the explorers had come across villages as they began to move westward and up from Florida and coming up and entire villages were completely wiped out from the diseases that had gotten there before they did. Right? So we know entire tribes, entire communities, entire people groups passed away before the written word got to them. But in Revelation 7, 9, it talks about in front of the throne and before the Lamb is somebody from every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know, I don't know what they did that was pleasing enough to God to find themselves in that Revelation 7-9 picture. But if every means every, then there's something that somebody was doing that was pleasing enough to God to find themselves in that picture. And I don't know what it is, but I lean on that. I lean on that saving grace and love of Jesus. Because when See, when Christopher Columbus came over, um, and, and, and first of all, I find it just a bit ironic that we celebrate um, a day for a man who never actually stepped foot on the United States. There's no record of him ever having even and, and play, built a sandcastle down in Florida, <laughs> right? We don't know that he ever, ever even came here. But what we do know is that when he came and, and, and he landed what is down around the Bahamas, it said, first of all, we said a tree is known by its fruits. And so when he lands and he comes across the, the, the tribal people that was there, here's what he had to say about these people. Now, this is in his own diary. And so we learned a lot about Christopher Columbus by his own writings and by the writings of a, of a priest, a Dominican, a Dominican priest who came with him, as well as some of his friends and their writings. So here's what we know about the people that Christopher Columbus encountered when he first came to shore. He said that they are the best people in the world and above all the gentlest. Without knowledge of what is evil, nor do they murder or steal. They love their neighbors as themselves and they have the sweetest talk in the world. Always laughing, it says. Christopher Columbus wrote that they're always laughing. They're very simple and honest and exceedingly exceedingly liberal in all that they have. That's what Christopher Columbus encountered. But what was his response to these people? He went on to write that because they are this way, they shall make fine slaves. With 50 men, we can subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. And what was it that he wanted them to do? He wanted them to bring them gold. That was really what it was. Because it said if the enslaved tribal people did not bring back enough gold. Because they set minimums that they had to bring back. If they didn't bring enough to set an example. He would chop off the hands of people and let them bleed to death in front of all the others. A Dominican priest De las Casas wrote, and this is a guy that was a good friend of Christopher Columbus who traveled with him on some of his trips over here. In his writings, he said that that the soldiers would stab Indians for sport, dashing babies' heads on rocks. He also reported that children were... Children were thrown to dogs to be devoured, and newborn babies born to female prisoners were flung into the jungle to die. He estimated about seven thousand children died within a three month period that he was there. Guys, this is hard stuff you know i I wrote an article a couple years back for the tennessean and i and I included some of this stuff in there and and they wrote me, they, they wrote me back and said you know, we really don't have room for this much space in this little op-ed piece. Um, Would you mind if I cut out some of the stuff that it'll fit in in our space? I said, yeah, sure, just send it back to me. Let me see what you're cutting out. This is the stuff they cut out. And I understand that to some degree, right? I understand that. But this is real stuff. This is what happened. Another one of the guys that was a good friend of Christopher Columbus's, he says that, That Columbus gave him a native woman with whom, and he quotes, I conceived desire to take pleasure. I wanted to put my desire into execution, but she did not want it and treated me with her fingernails in such a manner that I wished I had never begun. But seeing that, I took a rope and I thrashed her well. Finally, we came to an agreement. The native population on that land in 1492 was estimated to be around 300,000. Within four years, it was down to 200,000. Within 15 years, it was down to 60,000. Within 50, 50, within 50 years, it had gone from 300,000 to about 500 people, tribal population. And guys, I could tell you more stories. I could tell you stories of the Indian boarding schools here in the United States and in Canada where Native children were forced to go through and the the terrible, terrible, terrible abuse that took place at these. The cycles of abuse that took place, there's so many of these stories we could talk about and get into. But the greatest sin committed against our Native people, and I believe this 100%, the greatest sin committed against our Native people by the missionaries, by the Europeans that came over is that when they had the opportunity to share the real Jesus with our native people, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They did a lot of other stuff in the name of Christianity, but they didn't share the real Jesus with us because had they shared the real Jesus, then we would have seen the fruits of the Spirit. We would have seen love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we would have seen But we didn't see that. And so Susan and I, as we travel, as we go to these different tribal communities throughout the U.S. and Canada, every summer we take the kids, we load them up, and you guys are so responsible for us being able to go out there. And we take these baskets of hope is what we call them. And and essentially they are these laundry baskets, and you guys have probably seen them stacked up out here in, in May right before we go out. And they have about $100 worth of household items in them. And, and we go into people's homes, working with local churches and ministries that have a year-round presence on the res. And we get these baskets to people. Now, sometimes these people will welcome us in and say, thank you so much. And, and we'll get a chance to hang out with them and pray and just talk. And, and then sometimes they say thanks and they shut the door and we're gone. And either way, I'm okay with it. Either way, because you see, if we're giving somebody something only to get something in return, we're not giving at all. We're trading. Right? And I'm not here to trade Jesus. I want to give Jesus. And so, but as we're in these people's homes and in these people's communities, we see the hope that exists. Now, you don't see it if you study, if you watch the news. And you don't really see it if you watch Dances with Wolves, but we have hope. We have hope. And as we, as we visit with these people and we, we hear these tribal stories, we see these great parallels between biblical stories and tribal stories. Some of them are great flood stories. We hear them all the time. Redemption stories. We hear stories about tree of life stories that these tribal people have been telling for years and they greatly parallel biblical stories, the life of Jesus. I wanted to share one of them with you. It's a particular tribe and it's uh, kind of up in eastern Washington what's now Spokane area. They had this story that they've been told for untold centuries that one day they're going to become these white or light-skinned people wearing long black clothing. And they're going to bring in their hand leaves that are bound together and the things that they're teaching from these leaves you're supposed to listen to. So when the priests come walking up with their long black robes and their Bibles, the people received them immediately. Received them, wanted to know what was in these leaves that were bound together because they'd been prophesied to these people. And they got along real good. And so then some of the priests decided, what we'd really like to do is take a couple of your tribal members and take them off to babysit like a Bible training. We want to teach them the Word of God, then let them come back and minister to the people. So that's what they did. The chief gave up his son and one other uh, young man in the tribe, went away for two years to learn the Bible, learn to, to read and all this. So he comes back. They come back into the community, and they began to, to, to and they said, okay, now what we're, what we're going to do is every Sunday we're going to get together, or once a week we're going to get together to, to learn of God. And that was a little confusing to the tribal people because they said, why do the white people only worship God one day a week? We worship the Creator all, all day, every day. We wake up in the morning and we pray to the east. We go to bed at night and we pray giving thanks for that day. So it's constantly a giving of things. They said, why do, why do these white people only do it once a week? But anyway, so the two, the two men had come back and began to, to once a week was, was speaking, and, and people began to come. The tribal people began to come. And before long, they had literally thousands coming to hear the teachings. And then these priests come back, passing back through months later, and they see this large gathering. See, they didn't anticipate that kind of a crowd. And when they came back and they saw this large gathering here that the, these two guys were still preaching and teaching about Jesus on, they said, wow, you guys have done a pretty good job. We'll take over from here. And then they only began to preach in English. And they came with their list of do's and don'ts that you have to do now that you're going to become a follower of Jesus. And the numbers dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until it wasn't long before anybody's coming back again. You see, our native people, God has re- always revealed himself to our native people in different ways. With my Choctaw people, we were originally down in Mississippi area, and when the European missionaries first came through to us, they would see us praying to the sun during the daytime and at nighttime praying to the moon. Well, they never took the time to ask us what it is you're doing, so they assumed we were polytheistic, that we worshipped a sun god and a moon god. But one of the primary beliefs of the, of the Choctaw people was in a single creator who lived up in the heavens. And that that, that that sun was a hole in the sky through which we could easier pray to God. At nighttime, that hole in the sky was the moon. But see, they never stopped to ask us, what is it that you guys are doing? That'd be like me coming in here to church some, like last Sunday and, 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 and seeing some stuff up here. And Pastor Chris get up here and says, okay, this is the blood of Jesus. This is the body of Jesus. Eat this and, and, and remember him. If I don't understand what the ceremony is about, I want to think you're a bunch of cannibals, right? I don't want anything to do with you. So we have to understand people, understand cultures to effectively minister there. And that's what you guys are doing in Haiti. Man, I love that. I love how we reach out. I heard it said one time that that... The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be known to all mankind until somebody goes and incarnates it in a local expression to them. That's what we've got to do, whether it's here in the U.S., in different communities within our big cities, in countries around the world. We've got to go and incarnate it in a local expression. And to be honest, I've never really understood why I see these pictures of people ministering over in Africa where it's really hot and they're wearing these coat and ties. I never quite got that. And maybe somebody can explain that one to me another time. But anyways. And so, so yes, we got to learn. We got to talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. Right? We can't assume we know what somebody believes just because of the way they're dressed. Or the way they act. Or, or, or the, the little bit of information we know about somebody. We can't draw conclusions just by that little bit of knowledge because what begins to happen is we begin to take a cultural preference and turn it into a biblical standard a cultural preference becomes a biblical standard we say well they don't do it the way we do it and we know we're probably right so therefore they must be wrong because theirs is different and that's not it at all See, we can't come in and exchange one sin-stained culture for another sin-stained culture because all of our cultures are stained by sin. That's the nature of man. So sometimes we just got to accept people where they're at initially and begin to walk with them and pray and let the Holy Spirit move in their lives and convict their hearts of things they need to hold on to and things they need to let go of. Because like with our native people, you know, we know according to Acts 17, 26, that God said that from one one man, God made all nations of men. And he created them and and specifically placed them in the locations and the time frames in which he did. We know that from Acts 17, 26. And we have a loving God, right? I think we can all agree we have a loving God. But do we think that, that God would decide not to reveal himself to our people, our native people here in this continent, all those thousands of years? Knowing that we weren't going to get the written word until the 1700s and 1800s in most cases, do we think God was not going to reveal himself to our native people? Of course not. Because we know that in Romans 1, 19 and 20, God says that what may be known about God is plain to man because God has made it plain to him. That since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So God said that in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that we can recon- see creation and recognize the creator, said all men are without excuse. Many of you have heard my wife's testimony. And if you haven't, that's one you, a life you need to be a part of, I can assure you. My wife's testimony, and I won't tell her testimony for her, but I will just say this, throughout her life, she's experienced much abuse. You know, she has a she has a stab wound from when she was tried somebody tried to take her out. She have marks on her wrist when she tried to take herself out. Throughout her life of challenges, anytime she would encounter this stuff, she had this book that she'd go to and read from, and this book always made her feel better. She called it her magic book. She'd go and she'd open this book up and she'd read and there'd be something in whatever she read at that moment that would bring her some relief, some comfort. When she was 20 years old, she heard the name of Jesus for the first time, gave her life to Christ and never looked back. Then sometime later, she got to look and said, I want to... she went to find this old magic book to see what it was. And of course, as you can imagine, that magic book was the Bible. So throughout her entire life, when she would experience the hurts and the pains, God would continue to speak to her through this magic book. But if you know my wife, you know that she's not defined by the dysfunction that she endured and the pains and hurts that she grew up. That does not define her. She has hope. And she lives that hope. And she, she shares that hope. You see, when we go back into our native communities to minister, we know the statistics. We know that roughly... The unemployment's roughly about 80% in most of these communities. You know how they freak out here if unemployment rates jumps two-tenths of a point? 7.3 to 7.5. Oh, how are people going to eat, right? One of the reservations we go to has 85% unemployment. The addiction rates are about five times the national average. The, 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 The suicide rates are seven times the national average in Native communities. On the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, from December of January, or or December of 2014 to March of 2015, four months, there were 103 documented suicide attempts. About 20 of those were successful, and that's only kids the ages between 12 and 24. what's going on in a child's life, a 10-year-old kid's life that they think their only escape is to hang themselves. There's a lot of pain, but there's a lot of hope. And so, you know, the the sexual abuse rates in these communities is is, is about 80% of our Native people have, have experienced sexual abuse at some point in their lives. But you know what gets me? Is only between three and five percent profess to know Jesus. Only between three and five percent. So, so while you got all these staggering statistics that could really bring us down, we hang on hope. Because we know that Jesus is very capable of impacting lives and changing lives, like they did mine, like they did my wife's, like they did so many others. Now I want to share something else with you here, and, and this is you know, we, we, we laugh about Facebook and, and how much time people spend on Facebook and all the junk and the silly pictures on it. You know, my older brother, Shane, time there's, there's somebody uses Photoshop to have like this 75-foot alligator that was discovered in Smyrna or something, my brother is the one that believes that and sends them all to me. <laughs> and I, I mean, about three or four times a week, I get one of those things where I've got to send it to seven people real fast. Or otherwise, you know, I'm not going to, you know, have luck or something. But Facebook has become a great tool for ministry for us. As we connect with people, and my wife especially, more so than myself, but my wife connects with people. And my wife put a post up this week that I want to share with you. And you'll understand why. So my wife wrote on her Facebook post, as a young girl, I was called ugly, burnt, prairie nigger, and many other horrible names, especially since I had dark skin. As a result, my self-esteem was very low, and when I looked in the mirror, I only saw ugliness. I learned how to braid my hair and do many things without looking in the mirror because I wanted to avoid seeing my face. After many years of seeing myself through negative eyes, I decided it was time to ask God to show me what he saw. And Now, I can honestly say that when I look in the mirror, I only see a beautiful First Nations woman with an amazing heart. And sometimes when our eyes lie to us, we only need to ask the one who created us to reveal the truth. He is truly the master of creating beauty inside and out. She wrote that post. And, you know, many times if you, if, if you write something that's kind of cute or something and, and, and somebody may share it one or two times, you, some of your friends may share it so other people can experience it. That post, as of this morning, had been shared over 600 times. 600 times. And so, now her post has been read, or or had the little like button checked, like over 2,200 times. I don't know how many times all these other that were shared, how many times those were checked. But say conservatively, say say it was 50 people read it each time it was shared. That's over 30,000 people that are experiencing that. But what I want you to know is that if it was shared 600 times, that's a lot of people that resonate with what Susan went through. A lot of people that were called names and abused and treated poorly growing up. A lot of people that were struggling and called names. But Susan went to God and had hope. And say, God, show me how I look in your eyes. And that's what we do. You see, because there is hope. There is hope. And I know some of you guys are saying, Charles, you don't know the crap I've been through. Man, you don't know the junk that I've had to endure growing up. And you're right, I don't. But God does. God does. Charles, I don't, man, it sounds good, but I I, I don't have the strength to have hope. But I got good news for you. Even though you don't have the strength to have hope, you got family and friends and saints in this building that want to have hope for you. Just like the man in Luke 5 who was lowered down, his buddies went and lowered him down on the bed through the ceiling of a house so Jesus could touch him and heal him. That man didn't have the strength. He probably didn't have the faith to go to God for healing. But his friends had faith for him. His friends had faith for him. And so there's some folks here today that maybe don't have much hope. But we've got some folks here that want to pray for you and to have hope for you. Have hope to see yourself as God sees you. Have hope to overcome the stuff that happened in your life that's holding you back. Hey, be right. If you guys want to come on up, you see, to have hope means to have a future. To have hope, not just a future for yourself, but to be able to give a future to somebody else. You know, we have had seven kids, and then over the summer, God gave us two more. And I'm, I'm amazed that as some of the people who are believers and Christians and folks that know us, and I think know us kind of well, would ask one of three questions. We heard this quite a few times since we brought the other two children home with us. People say, well, did, did you pray about it before you brought the kids home? Or they'll say, Charles, I've been to your house. Are you sure you have enough space for two more kids? Or they'll say, Charles, can you afford to bring two more kids to your home? No, we didn't pray about it. No, we don't really have space. And no, we can't afford it. But fortunately, it's not about what we can do. It's about what God can do. When you're walking along and you see people struggling in the water, you don't pray, God, should I jump in that swimming pool and save that person? You dive in. That's what God allowed us to do. And when we're in there flapping around in the water trying to hold on to something, God is that life preserver that we hold on to because he's plenty big enough to hold us and our nine kids. And so I want to just open it up now to anybody that just says, you know what? I want to have hope, but my circumstances are holding me back. My past, my pain is holding me back. I want to, as we go into this song here, I'd love love to, to have some of you guys who just want to be prayed for. Come on up, let some other folks have hope for you. When your hope is weak, can we do that, Pastor? You. Yeah. been told stuff in our lives lies that that, we didn't mean to hold on to but we did people call us names and they say bad stuff to us and we held on to that we don't want to hold on to it but it's been told to us so we we just kind of stuck with us but just like my wife said in that post that Facebook post that she wanted to be seen she wanted to see herself the way God sees her And my dear friend, Scott Hamilton, told me one time, and and he comes from an adoptive home, and I love it because one of my children that's not biologically mine comes up to me and when we're together, people say, man, Charles, he looks so, you guys look just alike. And I love that. What Scott would say, that people would say to his biological mother or his, his adoptive mother how he looks just like her. And then what Scott said was that his mom told him that you look like the ones that love you the most. Right? Guess what? God loves you the most. See yourself the way God sees you. Receive that and have hope.